0: Hope everybody's having a good Sabbath. It's like winter came back or fall came back today. Um, But hopefully everybody is also prepared to stay uh, after our service as we have uh, fellowship. I want to maybe just mention that uh, for a second. We get real busy, uh, uh, you know, coming and kind of get into the routine of coming and singing together, uh, listening to me or Zach or somebody preach or teach or... Or something like that. Fellowship and uh, walking together is more important than listening to a sermon. It's uh, doing life together. Um, And so, um, a while back, uh, as a staff, we decided look, you know what we ought to do is like on every fifth Sabbath, every fifth Saturday, we'll do something special, something different. Um, you know, where we can hang out and spend time together. Uh, it's why we also came up with, you know, on the, on the third Sabbath of each month, you know, we would have a, a fellowship dinner kind of thing of some kind, you know, thematic kind of deal. Um, some people are not able to get over to uh, Zach and Susan's once a month uh, or even over to the Hudson's house once a month just because of scheduling. If you can't <clears throat> get away from work or whatever and you can't get there, Uh, what can we do here as a fellowship where we can have more time to just hang out? Uh, And so we came up with this. Uh, So after the service for us, you know, hanging out here and playing games and brown bagging it or or whatever it is that we do, it's a lot more than, well, we're just going to hang out together. Um, It's bonding and getting to know each other and spending some time together and, just talking uh, and just being with each other. And so that's why we're doing it. Uh, and I'm glad you're here. And I know we've got some that are out and out of town and stuff and just can't. Um, but when we do these things, I'd really just want to encourage you to maybe make that special effort uh, to be here and and to participate in hanging out and doing life together. You know what? Here's what I've noticed. I'm, I'm about to turn 63. I've been in the ministry a long time. People change churches almost like we change our cars. But you know what you never change? True friends. They'll stick with you whether you change jobs or neighborhoods or even states. Uh, they're still your friends. Um, <clears throat> and so for us here, and we're not that big... Um, it's real important for us to be here and to get to know each other even more and literally become friends more than just acquaintances. Uh, and, and the only way you can really get to know somebody is by hanging out, playing games, getting a little competitive, still loving each other, even when you lose, <laughs> um, and, and breaking bread together and just spending time together. So I'm glad you're here and Uh, Hope everybody's having a good Sabbath and a good weekend and uh, that this will be a good and fitting uh, end to our Sabbath. If you got your Bibles, got the notes, it's just one page tonight. I'm going to try to keep it fairly brief uh, so that we can hang out and you're not just listening to me all night. Um, We're just going to cover these first 12 verses in John chapter 8, one to keep it short and number two... Uh, to try to point out something fascinating. If you've got something other than my notes there, you got your own Bible, whether it's electronic or whatever, and if you look uh, there in your Bible, especially if you've got like an ESV or if you have a New American Standard, I'm not sure if if you have um, the NIV or what it might have, but either starting with verse one, or in verse 53 of chapter 7 you might have some brackets there or there'll be a little asterisk by either verse 53 or verse 1 of chapter 8 and you know what <clears throat> it's going to say if you uh if you're electronic and you can just click on the link or if you're using the concordance you'll have to see little asterisk might have a number one by. You have to get to the center column to read all. Anybody, everybody here know how to use your concordance in your Bible? Because it's, it's not easy sometimes, and the, the print is pretty small. Have a little number there. Usually on that one, I think it's number one, and you'll go to verse 53 in the column. You'll see the number one, and you have to read that really small print. What that really small print is going to say is this. In almost all of the older manuscripts from verse 53 of chapter 7 to verse 11 of chapter 12, those verses are not found in almost all of the older Greek manuscripts. Uh, This passage of Scripture, and here's what's really interesting about that. This might be one of the most famous New Testament passages. It's where the, they bring out the woman caught in adultery. And Jesus says, where are your accusers? And he, everybody knows the story where he was writing in the ground, and there's a gazillion different theories on what he was writing. Some say, you know what he was writing? He was writing their names. <laughs> yeah, You know what he was writing? He was writing their names and their sins. and all. We don't know. We have no idea. We have, it's all speculation. We don't know what he was writing. Um, but it 's one of the most famous um passages in the New Testament, because if you 've seen almost any of the Jesus movies it 's in almost every one of them uh where they you know catch this woman caught in adultery and they bring her out i 'm going to talk about it because it is in our Bible um, but i i want I want to show you something when we look at this how it is pretty interesting. So let me read these 12 verses, and then we'll march through this and talk about this passage of Scripture. Starting in verse 1, it says, And Yeshua went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he came again to the set-apart place, and all the people were coming to him. And having sat down, he was teaching them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, This woman was caught in the act of adultery. And in the Torah of Moses commanded us that such should be stoned, what then do you say? And this they said, trying him, so that they might accuse him. But Yeshua, bending down, wrote on the ground with his finger, as though he didn't hear. But as they kept on questioning him, He straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And bending down again, he wrote on the ground. And when they heard it being reproved by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning from the older ones until the least, and Yeshua was left alone and the woman standing in the middle. And Yeshua straightened up and seeing no one but the woman said to her, Woman, Where are those accusers of yours? Did no one condemn you? And she said, no one, master. And Yeshua said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Therefore, Yeshua spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall by no means walk in darkness, but possess the light of life. And we pray that... that Yahweh would honor the reading of His Word. Amen? Amen. So let me read uh, a couple of things to you. This is from Wolvard's uh, commentary. This is just his notes on here. And I, I ran across this a lot, actually. It says, Almost all textual scholars agree that these verses were not part of the original manuscript of the Gospel of John. The NIV states in brackets that the earliest and most reliable manuscripts do not have John 7:53 through 8:11. This part's what's interesting. The style and vocabulary of this passage differ from the rest of this gospel. And the passage interrupts the sequence from 7 chapter 7 verse 52 to chapter 8, 12. I'm going to show you that in a second. It is probably part of true oral tradition, which was added later to the Greek manuscripts by copyists. Some of them use that uh, in John chapter 20, where he says Jesus did a lot of other things that aren't written in this book. If we were to write all of them, all the books in the world wouldn't be able to contain them. But these were written so that you would know that he's the, the Christ. Uh, And so a lot will take that as to say, well, there's a lot of things that he did and said that aren't written. Doesn't mean that they're not viable or whatever. Anyway, let me continue reading because then in this uh, commentary, it sends you to an appendix that continues to talk about this situation. It says this, and this is the part that's really fascinating uh, about it. It says, not only do many Greek manuscripts lack these verses, but those that do include them often mark them with asterisks or another sign. In addition, various ancient Greek manuscripts include the passage, watch this, in five different locations. Um. Some starts after uh, John uh, chapter 7, verse 36, or verse 44, or after 52, or even after twenty one chapter 21, verse 25, and even found in Luke um, 21, verse 38. Just kind of shows you that it's a little confusing, even when you get into the original manuscripts. Um, it says, both textual evidence and stylistic data in the passage indicate that this is not uh, part of John's original uh, material. Now, um, here's what you have to also remember. And this is, uh, there, there was a time when I don't know that I would have brought that up as a pastor because a lot of people would just have a hard time handling it. I don't think you people here will have as hard a time handling it because you're people that have already been learning to think for yourself and that that would not rattle your cage too much. There are some people that if they read that, they'd go, you mean there's things in my Bible that shouldn't be there and should I even trust the Bible? And then would get to where they wouldn't trust their Bible or even read it anymore. Um, But I'm not afraid to let you guys know that there's some questions about all of this and looking at it from that viewpoint. Why would I say that? Well, because I just told you when I read that that they said most of the older Greek manuscripts don't have it. And when they do have it in the Greek manuscripts, sometimes they're in other places. But I've also been trying to help us be more educated on the fact that we know for sure that the Gospel of Mark was originally written in Hebrew And there's mounting evidence that all the Gospels were originally written in Hebrew. They were later translated into Greek and everything else and then copied. Um, And I'm sure also that when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote, 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 when they wrote the first, these Gospel accounts, I don't know that they were thinking, oh, this is going to be included in the quote-unquote Torah nor did probably the people that were writing or copying them think, oh, this is going to become part of people's Bible, right? These were documents written so that people would know that Yeshua was the, the Messiah. What was the Bible everyone was using at the time? It was the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. Um, so I'm not even sure that the scribes that were writing this and copying this down we're that concerned about it like a scribe copying down the Torah. That's my point. You, you following me? Therefore, it could be in different places or more scribal errors or whatever that you might find. Uh, and people that get into uh, translating the Scriptures and they get into these technical issues, these are the questions they deal with and actually struggle with. Um. But I'm not afraid to let you know that that's there because I think you're very intelligent people and you're going to be okay knowing some of these facts. Nod your head or something like you're, you're okay. <laughs> All right. So <clears throat> here's what I, I want to go through this passage because it is in our Bible. Chances are it really did happen. Um, maybe John is not the one that originally put this down. Who knows how it actually got here? but it is here, and I do want to talk about it. I don't think it contradicts anything in Scripture, and I want you to see something interesting because the scribes catch this woman that's caught in adultery, right? And in verse 4, it says, they come to him and they say, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Then they pose a question because they're trying to trip him up. They say, now, in the Torah of Moses or Moshe." The command is that one like this should be stoned. So what do you say? Doesn't that even sound like, I don't know, the news and social media of today? They just throw something out there because what what are they trying to do? They're trying to trip you up. And also trying to find something that they can hang on you to discredit you or whatever, which is what they're trying to do to Jesus, which should also let us know, once again, there's nothing new under the sun. We just got new ways of doing the same old tricks and the same old things. There's nothing new. It's happening today. But here's what I want you to see. It says, now they're trying to trip him up, right? And it says, they make the, they make the comment, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Right? Simple question, where's the man? Because he's not there. The only one that's there is the woman. Right. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. We're supposed to stone her according to the law. What do you say, teacher? See, they're trying to trap him because if he if he condemns her, he's been saying he has, he's not sent into the world to judge the world, but to bring salvation into the world, right? He says, but my judgment is true. We'll get into all that a little bit, but. He goes, uh, I'm not here to judge the world. Uh, The father is going to handle all that. And they're trying to trip him up like, okay, we need you to pass judgment for this woman to be stoned. Or do you not agree with the Torah? So they think they've got him trapped. Not even realizing that their trap is self-defeating. Where's the woman? I mean, where's the man? He's not there. Uh, Jesus acts like, I don't even hear you. (laughs) Um, It says, now I I want you to, you can jot these verses down real quick. Leviticus 20 verse 10. Leviticus 20 verse 10. This is what it says. And a man who commits adultery with the wife of another man, who commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, the adulterer and the adulteress shall certainly be put to death. There's another one. This one's easy. Deuteronomy 22:22. Deuteronomy 22:22 says this. When a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die, both the man that lay with the woman and the woman. You shall purge the evil from Israel. So where's the man? He's not there. Maybe that's what Jesus was writing. Where's the man? We don't know. There's a lot of speculation out there. He, that might be what he wrote. Where's the man? Uh, this whole thing is um, tainted, so he's writing with his finger, and it says this, they keep on questioning. They keep on pushing him, needling him. What are you going to say about it? What's, what's What are we going to do? And there's this, can you just imagine, there's this crowd, and evidently, people talking and talking over one another, like, that happens all the time now, right? Just people ranting and raving, and, and they're trying to trap him up, <clears throat> and he's sitting there writing. <clears throat> So then he gets up and he says so whichever one among you that's without sin let you cast the first stone. What I'm wondering is number 1 we don't know what he wrote he could have been writing he could have been writing their names but he could have also been writing these he could have been writing these passages. He could have even wrote written out where's the man But what's interesting about this, could it be that their sin that he is pointing out, those of you that's without sin, let you cast the first stone, knowing that what they did was probably sinful. What they were doing was sinful. What they were doing was breaking the very Torah that they were trying to get him to actually break, if you will, because where's the man? And here's the other deal. It says that these, um, let me go back up. It says the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman who was caught in adultery. Could it be that this whole thing is a setup? Because if the man's not there and they're all saying that she's caught in adultery and evidently she is guilty because Jesus tells her, go and sin no more. She never says, I didn't do it. <clears throat> he just says, where are your accusers? She goes, they're, they're not here. He goes, well, then I don't accuse you either. D- go and sin no more. <clears throat> um, so where is the man? And could it be that these Pharisees knew that Yeshua was there, knew that he was in town, knew that he would be back, <clears throat> uh, and they've, they've gone, okay, here's a way we can trip him up. This woman... You know, she ought to be stoned anyhow. What are are the odds that they paid somebody off to do this? And then said, but we won't bring you before him, but we just, we need her to be guilty. Surely we don't think that's a 21st century thing. Right? That kind of stuff's been going on since day one. Uh, And these people aren't Right? There, Jesus literally accuses them of being sons of the devil later. Um, so we know that their heart's not right. <clears throat> so could it be that this whole thing was a trap and a drummed up thing, and the whole thing is sinful? And that Jesus says, so whichever one of you that's without sin, then you can throw the first stone. Then he goes back down and he starts writing again. Um <clears throat> I think that's probably the case. And I think that's what, no telling what he was writing, but he wrote something and everything he was saying convicted them there on the spot. Once again, this is my opinion, there, and my opinion is not even worth a cup of coffee along with all the other opinions of what he was writing. But I'm wondering if he didn't write out these passages That's what he was writing, these passages in the dirt where they would read it or even the first quote, which is what they would do. They would quote a part of it. Everybody knew what it was. We say John 3, 16. You know what it is? They didn't have that numbering system. So they would quote the most famous part of it. Like they would say, hear, O Israel. Everybody knew that's the Shema. They knew the passage. They would do a lot of that kind of stuff. Maybe that's what he was writing so if you're without sin, then you cast the first stone. And they become convicted, and it says starting with the older down to the younger. Why would that be the case? Maybe because they were uh, the most familiar with those passages because they had studied it longer. I, I, I don't know. <clears throat> uh, but whatever it was he wrote and what he said, it convicted them and they left. So then he goes, okay, so woman, where are your accusers? They're all gone. And she says, they're not here. So then Yeshua says, well, then neither do I condemn you. Folks, this is the heart of our Messiah. The heart of our Messiah is not to condemn, but to bring salvation and forgiveness. That's what he's after. That's why he came. He didn't come to judge. He came to bring salvation and forgiveness. And what compassion he has. He says, well, then neither do I condemn you. Could he have condemned her? (laughs) He's the author and finisher of life. Of course he could, but he doesn't. But he says something fascinating, doesn't he? He says, go and sin no more. So is Yeshua God in the flesh? Could he be wrong? Mistaken? Confused? So evidently, the woman was guilty because he goes, go and sin no more. What does that mean? Go and sin no more. It's not the only time it's said Um, I've got a number of passages for you. You might want to jot these down. Back in John chapter 5, verse 14, he finds this man and heals him. He finds him later in in the temple, and he says to him, See, you've been made well. Sin no more so that no worse matter befalls you. Um, We'll get to it later in John chapter 11. But John 11 verses 9 and 10 says this, Yeshua answered, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Here he's talking about... sinning and stumbling, why? Because the light of God isn't even in us. Let me go on. Romans 6, verses 16 through 20. Romans 6, 16 through 20 says, "'Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves "'servants for obedience, "'you are servants of the one whom you obey, "'whether of sin to death "'or of obedience to righteousness?' But thanks be to God that you were servants, you, uh, you were servants of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that for, from, from, form sorry of teaching to what you were entrusted. <clears throat> and having been set free from sin, you became servants of righteousness. I speak as a man because of the weakness of your flesh, for even as, as you did present your members as servants of uncleanness. And of lawlessness, resulting in lawlessness. So now present your members as servants of righteousness, resulting in set apartness or holiness. For when you were servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. He's saying here, look, let me say it this way, and it's a way we've heard it a lot uh, from the NIV or ESV or the New American Standard. You're a slave to whatever you present the members of your body servants to. You're either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. Whichever one you're obeying, you're a slave to that. Uh, Folks, that's the Apostle Paul writing to the believers in Romans, in, in, in Rome, in this book of Romans, talking about... At one point in our lives, we were slaves of sin, but now that we've entrusted ourselves to the gospel, we've been set free. Now we're slaves under righteousness, but we still have a choice every day, whether you want to be a slave under God and righteousness and goodness or of sin. You and I can still sin. Can anybody here testify to that? You still got that down? You still know how to do that? We can still do it. But we have a choice of not to. Let me go on. I've got a few more here than I thought. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, 34. 1 Corinthians 15, 34. It says, wake up to soberness righteously and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God And I speak this to your shame. He's like, look, don't sin. Even though we say we know how to and we do, folks, you don't have to. Did you know that? The reason you and I do is because we take our eyes off of Him and put our eyes on us. Then we get self-centered. We act out of emotion. We react to our situation we do the wrong things, say the wrong things, look at the wrong things, go the wrong places. We get self-centered, self-righteous, and everything else. And then that's when we find ourselves doing things that we shouldn't be doing. Listen to what it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. 1 Peter 2, 24. Who himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we, having died to sins, might live to righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. He says, we now have a choice to live to righteousness. Before we believed in God, before we believed in Yeshua as our Savior, had the Holy Spirit imparted to us, we had no choice but to just follow our sinful, self-centered nature. Now we've been given that, which means you and I have literally been empowered, watch this, to not sin, Before, we kind of had an excuse. (laughs) Now, we don't. We've been empowered to not do it. You don't have to. 1 Peter chapter 4 says, Therefore, since Messiah... It's in verses 1 and 2. 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2. Therefore, since Messiah suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, because he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so that he no longer lives the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but according to the desires of God. When we have put our lives in trust to God, we have the Holy Spirit living in us. What we're really saying is, I've put myself and my life in his hands to live for his honor. Therefore, I don't have to sin. I've literally put my, my goal in life towards something else. Folks, if you're just sitting there thinking, you know what, this is just as good as it gets, I'm just a human being and I'm just going to sin. <clears throat> That's a defeatist mentality that Satan wants you to believe. You know you don't have to sin. Simple question what is sin? Sin is lawlessness, as it tells us in 1 John. Sin is anti-Torah, going against what God said. It's not going against your heart. Now, if you think, you know, I'm about to do this. This is my opinion, because I'm going to add something here. If you think, if I do this, and it's wrong, but you know what? I'm going to do it. And if you don't realize that what you're doing maybe isn't, quote, unquote, against God's word, but you're going against what you think in your heart is right and wrong, therefore, you're acting out of rebellion. It's the rebellion that's sin, not necessarily the act. Are you following that? Because the act in and of itself might not be, quote, unquote, sinful. But if you think it is and you do it, then you act it out of rebellion, does that make sense? That's what the rest of the New Testament tries to teach us and show us. But if you think, well, you know, I'm just human and I'm going to sin and that's the way it is, you know, but thank God, you know, no, you don't have to. Uh, 1 John, <clears throat> chapter three, verses uh, four through ten. It says, "Everyone doing sin also does lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness." The actual word is anti Torah. It's antinomianism, which is anti law, lawlessness. Folks, lawlessness doesn't mean the laws of this land, it means the laws of this book. So he tells us in his word this is what sin is sin is lawlessness. And you know that he manifested to take away our sins. And in him, there is no sin. Everyone staying in him does not sin. Can I tell you that when I was in school, when I was at Criswell College, there were students along with me, but some students and even professors that could not deal with this passage. It rocked their world And I remember one professor saying, you know what? Uh, That's a difficult passage. Because it says that if we're believers in God, we don't sin. Yet all of us here know that we do. You know why you would take that mindset? When you don't understand that sin is lawlessness, anti-Torah. When the Torah doesn't apply to your life and you think it doesn't exist anymore, then even that statement doesn't make any sense and you can't, you can't make it work so then when you look at this theologically, you can't land the plane. You literally can't land the plane because it doesn't make sense. But when you understand that the Torah still applies, where applicable, then when you read this, you go, well, it, it makes perfect sense. It's not confusing at all. It makes sense. Therefore, those of us that are walking with Yeshua and walking with God, proclaiming that He is our God and our King, we don't walk in sin. And then watch this. And you will not want to. Can I even just ask a question? When you began to understand that the Torah still applies to your life, did your view of sin change. Mine did. Really changed. <clears throat> Therefore, verses like this became not a problem at all because it literally says in verse six, everyone staying in him does not sin. Everyone sinning has neither sinned him or known him, hasn't seen him or known him. This is the passage these professors and students were like, it says if we know Yeshua, we're not sinning. And if we are sinning, we don't know Him. And they're thinking, I don't know about you, but I did this morning. And, but I think I know God, and I'm really confused. <laughs> right? Little children, let no one lead you astray. The one doing righteousness is righteous, even as He, God, is righteous. The one doing sin is of the devil. Because the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. Uh, It goes on talking about this and that everyone born of God just doesn't sin. Also in 1 John 5, verse 18. We know that everyone having been born of God does not sin. That's 1 John 5, 18. What? But the one having been born of God guards himself... And the wicked one can't touch him. Folks, what that's saying here is that when we've turned our lives over to God, we have the Holy Spirit put in us, we understand that the Word of God still applies to our life and that there's a standard, which is actually good, right? When you know there's a standard. I mean, how would you have liked to have been out there climbing on poles and doing that without anybody telling you, this is how you do that or you get killed? That wouldn't be fun climbing up there going, I'm about to grab some wires and I could get fried up here. It's really nice to know, oh, when you do this and you do it this way, then you can be protected, right? It's nice to have guidelines so that you don't get killed. Folks, that's what the word of God is. It's our guidelines so that you go, oh, well, in this case, this is how I'm supposed to act. Okay. That way everything will work out right. Great. Uh, so he's telling us that when, when you're doing all this and you understand that there are guidelines and you understand that you're living your life to glorify him, then when you look at the word of God and sin, then you don't want to do that. When you understand these truths and an opportunity for sin comes up and you're going, okay, so if I do that and follow my flesh, it can not only destroy my life, but displease my God and my savior that brought me out of the pit uh, it's going to ruin my marriage, it's going to ruin this, it's going to ruin me financially, I'm going to hate myself. Why would you want to do that, right? It becomes less enticing. It loses its power and its sting. That's why Paul says, you know, where's the power in death? Where, where's the power in sin? It's, it's lost its sting. It has no power over us because we're now in another kingdom. We're functioning differently. So here's where Yeshua, back in verse 11, he says, so then I don't condemn you either, therefore go and sin no more. Folks, that's a statement that he, he used elsewhere. It's, we find it in the New Testament. I didn't. That was not an exhaustive set of verses dealing with once you become a believer to simply stop sinning, which means stop breaking the Word of God. Stop breaking the Word of God. Uh, That's what that means. Um, So here's what I want you to see. That's that whole passage there dealing with this adulterous woman. Wouldn't you say that's a really beautiful story where this woman's brought and he goes, well, I'm not condemning you either. You know what? Go and sin no more. Start fresh today. That's a good story, right? What's interesting is when you pick up at verse 12... It says, therefore Yeshua spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. Does that sound disjointed? It just told us that Yeshua was standing there with this woman by himself. The crowd left. Go and sin no more. Then Yeshua says to them again, I'm I'm the light of the world. Now he's going to be talking to this crowd. We don't have time tonight to get into it. But he's going to get into this real heated debate with these religious leaders again. Why is that interesting? Well, because quite possibly, as I look at all this, I have to agree that in this Greek text, it seems like that this section of Scripture has been stuck in here. Because watch this, last week when we were going through this, we, we talked about that he is what? He's there during what? The, what? Which feast is he in Jerusalem at doing these teachings? He's there during the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot. We talked about the, what the last day, the great day, and this big, called it, it's a water ceremony, water libation, everything, it's called the big great day. There's something else that I left out because I wanted to talk about it tonight. Um, so he's there during tabernacles, and he made this statement that what? He is uh, water, that if we believe in him, this water, this living water will well up inside us. That's what he was saying, right? In chapter seven. If you go to. Um, Picking up in chapter seven, because then Nicodemus is like, are we supposed to judge a man? You know, he's talking about all these things. Are we supposed to judge a man before he even heard him? And it, it says, they all went their way. They all went to their own houses. If you stop there, then pick up with verse 12. And it says, therefore, Yeshua spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. Anybody here ever hear that before? That Yeshua said that, right? It's extremely popular. And actually, the gospel of John starts off with that, right? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and it was the light of man and all that. You know, we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. All of that there is found in John chapter 1. Now we get here in John chapter 8, and Yeshua says, I'm the light of the world. Now, once again, why would He say that here at Tabernacles? Tabernacles. Well, it's because at the end of Tabernacles and during it, but this would grow throughout the week, the lighting of these menorahs there around the temple area during Sukkot. I got a little clip I want you to watch because I pulled this up. I thought they did it in a real short fashion. And then I want to share a few things with you um, can you show that clip for us? And it got bigger and bigger every day so that on the last day of the feast, the great hosanna, uh, the, the, the super-duper celebration. There would be so many torches on the temple mount well, that they, they said, according to the, the rabbinical literature, that you could see the light of the temple all the way far away in Galilee. That's how bright it was. Rabbis from the time of Jesus talk about the Feast of Tabernacles being uh, a joyous celebration where all the mountains around Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, were lit up by torches. They said the whole thing turned into one huge column. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John chapter I am the light of the world. Then he comes to me and won't walk in darkness anymore. He is the light. He is the Messiah. He's declaring that he is the one that will bring the light of God to all people if they would follow him. So it's a pretty uh, outstanding statement. He's uh, drawing attention to himself. He's declaring himself to be the Messiah in the context of the Feast of Sukkot. Powerful, right? Got a couple of things I want to share with you before we close tonight. (coughs) Um. So, let um, me pull it up. Here it is. Um, here's some notes I'd also got out of a commentary. It says, a major feature of the Feast of Tabernacles was the lighting of giant lamps in the women's court of the temple. The wicks were made from the priest's worn-out garments. The light illuminated the temple area and the people gathered to sing praises and dance. The light reminded the people, the Jewish people of how God was with them in the wanderings in the wilderness in the pillar of cloud which turned to fire at night. Uh, Let me read this some more here. It says, during the feast of tabernacles, Sukkot, There was a great ceremony called the Illumination of the Temple, which involved the ritual lighting of four golden oil-filled lamps in the court of women. These lamps were huge menorahs like a candelabra. Watch this, 75 feet high. They lighted the temple area at night to remind the people of the pillar of fire that had guided, the, guided Israel in their wilderness journey. All night long, the light shone their brilliance. It is said the illuminating, uh, it illuminated the entire city. In celebration and anticipation, the holiest of Israel's men danced and sang psalms of joy and praise before the Lord. This festival was a reminder that God had promised to send a light, the light, to a sin-darkened world. God promised to send the Messiah to renew Israel's glory, release them from bondage, and restore their joy. Imagine that you were in ancient Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles, visualizing or visualize seeing these massive menorahs giving a tremendous amount of light. Now imagine the impact of the words said by Jesus in the temple courtyard when he announced, I am the light of the world. They say that they, it lit up the whole city. Folks, once again, this is why Yeshua would make comments referencing scripture and also doing it in connection with what was happening around him at that moment. They had just seen this. It was part of all this. This, All this is happening, this illumination and celebration. Now, what are these verses really found in Isaiah? I really want to challenge you to to read um, all of Isaiah chapter 49, but I want want to read one verse for you. Isaiah 49 verse 6, and he says, Shall it be a small matter for you to be my servant, watch this, To raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved ones of Israel. And I shall give you as a light to the Gentiles to be my deliverance to the ends of the earth. Are you catching the significance of just that statement? He's referencing the Messiah being the light of the world, his servant, and bringing back the tribes of Judah and the preserved ones of Israel. Why would he say the tribes of Judah and the preserved ones of Israel? The house of Israel, the preserved ones that God sent into the wilderness to preserve us in exile. So that at the end of time, he can do something miraculous through the Messiah and prove to everybody that he really is God as the light to all of the Gentile world that Yeshua really is the Messiah. This is when he's he's getting there, when they're remembering going through the wilderness, God being their light at night. Can you imagine that for 40 years? You're following a cloud that's like a pillar, that's weird in and of itself, right? You're eating manna. You're eating what is it bagels every week. You don't know, it's just, it's, it's what is it stuff. They made what is it whatever. They made, they made it like bread, and it was manna means what is it. You're eating this what is it stuff. You got an angel there that has the name of God in him. Gets really weird, right? But then that pillar turns into a pillar of fire at night. When it moves, you moved, right? You end up back in Jerusalem. It's about 2,000, 1,500, 2,000 years later. They're now in Jerusalem. They have this big celebration. They're seeing this lit up. And what's going through their minds What it would have been like in the wilderness as my ancestors were following God with this pillar of fire at night that kept the camp lit and protected. And watch this. Could they have also been envisioning the Shekinah glory of God over the tabernacle in the wilderness that ended up over the very temple they were looking at? but now has gone. And Yeshua is standing there saying, I'm the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. Um, And he says, he who follows me shall by no means walk in darkness, but possess the light of life. Um, Folks, our God is God, and He's the light of the world that was prophesied about thousands of years ago. He shows up on the scene and He says, I am the light. Just like I told you that if you follow me, wells of living water are going to spring up in you because I am the water of life. Uh, if you follow me, you will not walk in darkness, but you're going to walk in light. Why? Because I am the light of the world. I am the Shekinah glory. I am the pillar of fire. I am the walking Torah. I am the law of God that will invade your life. And if you love me, you'll keep my commandments and follow me and prove through all that, that you do love me. It really is just that simple. And that's the God that's here with us. Isn't that good news? I think it's great news. Uh, God loves you so much that He crossed eternity to spend eternity with you to restore that relationship. He's the light of the world. But you know what else? He's your light. He's your personal light. Just like He was the personal redeemer of this woman caught in adultery. He says, you know, so go and sin no more. How was she going to do that? When she finds out later, the one that forgave her died on a cross and rose again three days later. What? Yeah. Um, He forgave me personally, and then he died on the cross. What? What? And he spoke to her personally, just like when you came to faith in him, he spoke to you personally.